Well, it's, it's, it's taking back our future from the status quo, taking back our future from this warped sense of success as um, grow the economy at all costs, taking back our future from, from the 1% or, or the 0.001% where the current system is working quite well for them. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Greed is good. That was the mantra made famous by stockbroker Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas in the 1987 movie Wall Street. For John Erickson, that line came to symbolize the overconsumption and misguided priorities of conventional economics, which he argues is a path to planetary ruin. Erickson has charted a different course as an economist, one that fosters a healthy, balanced relationship between people and planet. John Erickson is the Blittersdorf Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy at the University of Vermont. He's also a faculty member of the Rubenstein School of Environment and Natural Resources and a fellow of the Gund Institute for Environment. He has a new book, The Progress Illusion, Reclaiming Our Future from the Fairy Tale of Economics. In it, Erickson challenges the myth of endless growth and argues for a new type of economics, one that supports enduring prosperity. John Erickson, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. You begin your new book saying, I'm not that kind of economist. Yes. So uh, what kind of economist are you? Well, I call myself an ecological economist. Um, I came to this field as a, as a way to try to merge these fields of ecology and economics, to really st- to understand an economy more as an ecosystem than some sort of made up human artifact. Um, so yeah, I'm not, you know, most people think of economists as, as money or stock market or Dow Jones or, you know, interest rates. Um, while all of that uh, is pertinent to my work, I'm not that kind of an economist. Can you explain, you threw out a bunch of terms there about kind of um, ecology and ecosystem and things that your kind of economics takes into consideration that perhaps is not taken into consideration by traditional economics. Explain a little bit more. Yeah. um, I mean, I was in a traditional economics program at Cornell University in grad school. And, you know, learning this sort of branch of mathematics, the abstraction of the economy into equations. But uh, I got involved in a forest project, so I figured I better learn some forest ecology. And I got involved in a sustainability project, so I figured I better learn some ethics and, and, uh, and, and morality. <laughs> and, you know, one semester I was simultaneously taking a class in ecology and ethics and economics. And... I was just like, what the heck is going on here? How can these three courses taught at the same university be talking about the same world? And um, as chance would have it, I stumbled into a, a book in a free book pile by Herman Daly, the sort of modern modern father of, of ecological economics who recently passed away, and discovered this field of ecological economics, of treating the economy as an ecosystem of of trying to lay out a moral compass for the economy and for economics as a way to kind of bring balance to um, economic development, as a way of focusing more on the quality of the economy 
than simply its quantity. Um, so yeah, to answer your original question, I've been calling myself an ecological economist ever since. So you <clears throat> describe in your book, The Progress Illusion, um, how a remarkably high percentage of your classmates at Cornell and other Ivy League schools, there is a straight line from the Ivy League to Wall Street. And it's something you don't question. It's very lucrative. Um, so what happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this book is really a, a kind of um, one of those midlife crises books, right? Sort of unpacking my own story and kind of where I'm at, where I came from. And yeah, I was, you know, I was on that bandwagon. Um, young white male, growing up in the go-go 80s, drinking the greed is good Kool-Aid from the Michael Douglas movie, Wall Street. Um, didn't know what I wanted to study in college, like probably most young men. <laughs> and my dad said, you know, well, study business, study economics, you know, you want to make a living. Um, you know, that's what makes the world go around. But I always, my, my sort of good sense of my mother, who was a Head Start teacher, um, and and sort of insisted that my brothers and I grow up in the outdoors, um, always kind of pushed against this kind of human-made, often man-made logic of economics. Um, and so I was, I was constantly challenging my professors with questions about science, <laughs> challenging my professors with questions about ethics, challenging my professors around the you know, so-called laws of economics that were human-made laws, but very often um, didn't obey the physical laws of the universe. And so um, while I went into this career path of an economics to make a lot of money, while I saw a lot of my classmates go on and do their MBAs and go to Wall Street, um, I somehow <laughs> jumped off that bandwagon and uh, went into this field of ecological economics just as the field itself was uh, was starting to formalize in the late 80s, early 90s. I was going to say, you, you keep talking about you went into the field of ecological economics. It wasn't a field then. No, no. I mean, it was it, an yeah, idea. It was an idea. I mean, it has a long history of thought that, that goes back um, through, through many generations, but it really wasn't formalized into something called ecological economics. Till uh, around 89, 90. And I, you know, I was an undergrad in 89, 90 and um, went into ecological economics in grad school, again, quite haphazardly because I found a free book <laughs> and marched into my advisor's office, Dwayne Chapman, a natural resource economist and said, I want to be an ecological economist. And uh, he at the time was writing kind of a standard textbook in economics. And he said, great. Why don't you write the last chapter of my book and tell me why the first twenty-five chapters are wrong? <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of the, the perfect challenge for a young contrarian yeah. grad student. Like exactly, show me I'm wrong, which of course was probably very appealing to you. Yeah, I think he was joking, but I, I took him I took him up on the challenge. I wrote that chapter, and and you know he put it in there. So for people who maybe still can't quite grasp how this differs from conventional economics, what would be sure. kind of a real world uh, example of how ecological economics is, a, is, um, is used today? Well, I think of it as um, 21st century economics. Um, 
it, it's a it's a it's an economics that reflects the realities of living on a full planet. It's an economics that reflects that as our growing human economic system grows, it pushes on a fixed, limited ecosystem. Um, one of one of my mentors, and again the father of ecological economics, Herman Daly, simply argued throughout his fifty-plus year career to take the box of an economy and put it inside a circle called the ecosystem. It really is that simple starting place <laughs> that creates this study of the economy as a subsystem of the environment, or indeed the economy as a subsystem of society and cultures, and then human society as a subsystem of the environment. This, you know, it's a little wonky, right? But that idea of an embedded system, right? Putting a box inside a circle is the simple idea of ecological economics that leads to fundamentally revolutionary thoughts on how to run the economy. Like what? What are revolutionary thoughts? Well, take, for example, the holy grail of gross domestic product, right? This is the single metric that since really the 1940s, 1950s, kind of post-Great Depression economics, that nearly, if not every nation on earth, has followed as their metric of, of social success, of social well-being, of... of uh, how to run an economy. You grow GDP, gross domestic product, the amount of goods and services that's produced within a one-year time period. The challenge with that, and the challenge from the perspective of ecological economics, is that not everything we make, not everything we produce, not everything that we consume is necessarily a benefit to humanity. Many things are regrettable costs. Many of the benefits of, of, of GDP, of a growing economy, go to the hands of very few. Well, while the costs are, are borne on the rest of us, on future generations when it comes to environmental degradation. In GDP, we count the depletion of the environment as income instead of depreciation of our natural capital assets. And so for a long time, ecological economists have argued the very simple case of let's look at our country's books and count benefits as benefits and costs as costs. Let's look at our country's books and account for who gets the benefits and who pays the costs. Let's look at our country's books and recognize that there are trade-offs between a growing economy inside of a fixed environmental system. And so ecological economics, I think, takes a very practical point of view that it's the quality of the economy. It's the net contribution of the economy to human society that we should be tracking not simply its quantity, not simply how fast we can make the hamster wheel turn around and around and around. One of the uh, most interesting examples you cite as an example of um, kind of conventional thinking taken to its extreme is you refer to a 1997 paper in Na the journal Nature that asked the question, what is the planet worth? Um, which, uh, you know, by the modern metrics where we're always asking that question, what's it worth? You know, why not mow down that, cut down that tree or knock down that neighborhood? What's it worth? So what answer did they come up with? What's the planet worth? And why what's... was that a significant moment? Yeah, I, th I think at the time it was worth $33 trillion. Right? So it was, it was about three times the size of the global economy in 1997. 
And in fact, many folks who call themselves ecological economists, including uh, my colleague, the lead author on that paper, Robert Costanza, uh, see this as a very important, fruitful exercise, right? Valuing the planet, valuing those things that don't have dollar values on them outside the marketplace. I've always seen that as a bit of a slippery slope, right? When we commodify nature, when we commodify people, when we commodify um, all those things that make make the so-called good life, uh, and when we put them into the sort of economist calculus, they instantly become tradable with everything else, right? When we put a dollar value on a standing forest or a dollar value on a clean river or a dollar value on endangered species, we can quickly get into the paint ourselves into the corner of, well, those things therefore are tradable commodities that we can trade with more shopping malls, more roads, more uh, industrial agriculture, more, more, more of everything else, and less and less and less of these things that we were trying to put dollar values on in order to prove their value. Um, you know, I go back to an earlier age. I go back to the late 60s and early 70s when we created things like the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act. None of those had an economics litmus test in their early incarnations. None of them required you to go through the mechanics of a cost-benefit analysis and prove that at the margin, which is the only place that economists think about that next choice at the margin, something in the environment is worth more preserved or conserved than it is on our table, right? Or in a human asset um, or in a road or a shopping mall. So, yeah, I call that the kind of peak of, of economism, right? The reduction of all social relations to market logic. Um, that kind of moment of declaring what the world is worth to the economy. Um, and um, it's, it's kind of, uh, well, it's, it's been a kind of a point that has split our field ever since. How has the climate crisis impacted the world of economics because clearly this was not a byproduct that was really given any value or thought as we had these notions of gross domestic product uh, and as you say uh, you know the impact on the environment of something that we might say is valuable a you know coal industry a steel industry you know turns out now to be fundamentally undermining any notion we have of an economy. Um, right. Nature's getting the last word every single time. Right. Um, how did conventional economics bring us the climate crisis? Well, conventional economics has considered climate change for decades in this class of thing called externalities, right? So when we grow the economy, when we produce or consume a new unit, there are extra costs outside of the decision makers um, calculus, either a consumer or a producer. And one of those extra costs is destabilizing the climate system. Um, so in fact, uh, William Nordhaus, um, an economist uh, from, from MIT got a Nobel prize for basically saying that there's a trade-off between a growing economy and a healthy climate. The, 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 the trick is, is that economists are trained, as I mentioned earlier, to think at the margin, to think at the next unit, right? 
So how climate economists have gone about thinking about climate change is what is the cost and what is the benefit of the next unit of growth? Now, to answer that question, you got to know <laughs> quite with, with some degree of certainty, what's the benefit of the next unit of growth? And that's easy to count up, right? Jobs and tax base and you know GDP. And what's the cost? Well, the costs and climate change are both short-term costs, but also long-term costs. They're costs that potentially could be irreversible. They're costs that are highly uncertain. They're costs that really don't fit into this mold of marginal analysis, the next benefit and the next cost. Um, so climate economics, how economists have thought about climate change has led to decisions as an informed presidents going all the way back to um, George H.W. Bush to basically do nothing, take a very cautious approach that the trade-offs of constricting a growing economy or protecting a kind of uncertain climate future aren't worth it, right? That, that we shouldn't do much, that the costs of, of acting on climate are much, much greater than the benefits. Um, in fact, William Nordhaus published this infamous paper in Science that was a what's called a dynamic optimization model. He took the whole earth, <laughs> mathematized it in an equation from the perspective of a single planner, a single person, a representative human, and solved for the, the, the optimal thing to do about climate change. And his conclusion was, yeah, at most we might, you know, spend a little bit of money to avert the worst case scenarios but the costs of climate change are no big deal. This same economist, William Nordhaus, led a National Academy of Study Science back in the 80s um, and came to the conclusion that climate change will largely affect agriculture. Agriculture is only 3% of gross domestic product. So therefore, I'm paraphrasing, even if we lose half of agriculture, that's 1.5% GDP. <laughs> So this is, the, this is the logic of the economist, of thinking about something that's fundamentally the foundation to human civilization is a healthy climate. The foundation to life on planet Earth is the climate. Yet we think of it at the margin. We think of it as this trade-off. We think of it as something that we should be weighing the consumption of luxury goods against the very survival of the human race. If you, Sorry, I got, on my, I got on my soapbox there for a minute. That was quite, that was quite a nearful. <laughs> no, no. If, if you were to be on the Council of Economic Advisors for President Biden, what would you tell him? What would you advise him that he's not presently hearing by the best and brightest economists who surround him? Well, I'd say that, you know, you're, you're steering the ship by the, the wrong instruments. Um, you're, you, the human race has just sort of jumped out of a plane and is, is, is skydiving towards the earth. And you're more interested in, in getting a, uh, an altimeter to tell us exactly where we are on our way down rather than a, than a good parachute. <laughs> um, I, I would tell him that, um, you know, we have to really start to, to imagine how can we build a post-growth economy? How can we build an economic system that that doesn't depend on growth to keep that system stable? How do how do we indeed um, uh, orchestrate 
a just transition to a right-sized economy. No economist who is walking in the White House is asking the question of scale and distribution. How big should the economy be? How big should the box be inside the fixed circle? And how should we fairly distribute the benefits and burdens of that economic system amongst all of us? Um, no economist is asking that question who walks into the White House. They are solely thinking about the efficiency of the economic system and the next benefit and the next costs. They're trained to think about quarterly profits, quarterly GDP, short-term thinking. And I think that is extremely dangerous. What's wrong with growth? <laughs> well, growth in some areas is great. But if we try to grow the whole system infinitely on a finite planet, that's what's wrong with growth. Um, you know, growth in, in, in the medical field, we think about uncontrolled growth as, as a kind of cancer, right? Uh, we have to really be thinking about growth for what purpose, growth for whom, and growth for how long. Um, look, I, I've, I've made the analogy that ecological economics thinks of the economy as an ecosystem. So think about a, an ecosystem going through stages of succession. At the early stages of an ecosystem, like our northern hardwood forest, you get pioneer species. You get species that are light-loving. You get species that prioritize competition and growth, right, at the early stages of a maturing ecosystem. But as an ecosystem enters its later stages, it starts to prioritize maintenance. Instead of prioritizing competition, it prioritizes cooperation. Right? Instead of worrying about growing, it worries about resilience. It worries about the ability to take shocks and to persist. That's where we are as a world economy. That's where we are, particularly in a rich country, the richest country on earth, the United States. We should be thinking about what does a mature, long-lasting, resilient economy look like? Not a fast-growing, competitive economy that concentrates the benefits into the hands of the very few, and spreads the cost out on the rest of us. What would decision making look like, you know, if we were to start charting a path based on ecological economics? I mean, we know what it looks like when our concern is inflation, unemployment, um, you know, the traditional indicators. It was supposedly a crisis in the last election that inflation was high. Um, so how would you turn those priorities around? What would be your key metrics of a successful or healthy economy? Well, I, I just mentioned the difference between the stage of a competitive economy versus a cooperative economy. So let, let's use that as an example. Um, for example, in a state like our own in, in Vermont, we're seeing the uptake of a lot of employee-owned companies, right? So this is removing the decision organization away from kind of a single decision maker or one decision maker, a kind of uh, autocratic decision making system, which is how most of the world's resources are managed through an autocratic decision making decision called multinational corporations towards a more cooperatively owned and cooperatively managed system, a system that considers uh, longevity and resilience and well-being of their workers. That's one small step, right? Um, or, or imagine um, cooperatively owned resources. Do you know that 40% of Americans belong to co-ops? 
everything from from banking cooperatives to food cooperatives, agriculture cooperatives, art cooperatives, retail cooperatives. Um, these are systems of ownership that are quite different of concentrating ownership in the hands of the few capitalists and spreading the benefits and costs of ownership across uh, many, many people, right? With, with many perspectives and, and, and many stakes in the decisions of those companies. Um, you know, I would, I would look to, uh, you know, the traditions of local planning, planning around bioregionalism. Um, communities get together all the time and make decisions around um, protecting land, protecting water, protecting food, organize, organizing around watersheds, food sheds, increasingly around energy sheds. Um, you know, this is less a one-size-fits-all solution, as economics preaches, and more of a kind of grassroots, stakeholder-included, bottom-up solution to longevity in, in our economic system. Um, the truth is there are so many things going on in the space at community scales, at regional scales, that the bright light of the media just doesn't give any attention to. Um, and it's our job, I think, to start to elevate those alternative economic systems, those alternative political e economic systems, um, to look beyond, especially in the United States, <laughs> beyond our sort of narrow U.S. centrism, and to think back through history and also across the earth that there are other ways to manage um, the planet's resources than simply putting more and more things into the market. John, I often understand the world or clarify it for myself by thinking about in any given situation, who's the winner and who's the loser. So when you characterize the fairy tale of economics that really is the dominant economic model of our time, how did that become the dominant model? In other words, who is the winner in that model and who's the loser? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, much of my the research behind this book is, is taking a walk through history, history of economic thought. And watching the kind of waxing and waning of economic logic between winners and losers, right? Between different flavors of economics that were more oriented around needs versus wants, or more oriented around the worker class or the capitalist class, or more oriented around the kind of ownership of the resources of the economic system in the hands of the very few versus um, spreading the wealth amongst the rest of us. So we see this kind of um, pendulum swing to different flavors and different versions of economics. And, and mo more recently, um, I, like many folks, have characterized the pendulum that swung back towards a more conservative brand of economics, back towards a, a brand of economics that prioritizes profits over anything else, as the neoliberal turn. And this is something that happened in the 70s and early 80s. Um, certainly the hallmark of it is the, is the turn towards uh, Reagan and Thatcher, the trickle-down economic model, where, where we sort of um, took on this grand experiment, again, of reducing all social relations to market logic. And the neoliberal turn didn't just kind of happen slowly or quickly or by accident. It was planned. It was paid for. It was invested in. Um, it was a reaction to uh, the, well, first and foremost, the, the New Deal in the uh, 30s and 40s, and then a reaction to the Great Society in the 60s and early 70s. 
um, it was a reaction from the capital class to, to sort of take back the economic system and go back to a, a laissez-faire system, a no-holds-bar system, a, a system where the only thing we have to do is shrink government down, as Grover Norquist said, to, the, to, to something that's small enough where we can drown it in a bathtub. Um, the neoliberal movement, neoliberalization, is kind of this current wave that we're in. And um, in the research for the book, I sort of, you know, unpacked all of the millions, indeed billions of dollars that have been invested in think tanks, have been invested in universities, invested in economics programs, business schools, invested in kind of an approach to um, society that prioritizes market relations over democracy. And I was going to ask, I think you just answered this, I was going to ask you, because we hear the term neoliberalism a lot, yeah. and um, it, it has a very um, distinct meaning, but I don't think a lot of people know what it is. So um, I, I may be asking you to repeat yourself, but can you just give a succinct definition of neoliberalism? Oh, boy, I had such a good one in the book um, by George Mombiot, who's a... Uh... He's a columnist for The Guardian over in the UK. Um, I'd love to quote him because he's, he's got my favorite one. Hold on just a second. Nothing like grabbing my own book, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it, you're right. Uh, it's sort of um, used in so many ways and has so many different um, uh, interpretations. But uh, George Mombi, it describes neoliberalism that, that really emerged in the 1970s and 80s as a political movement. And that, that's how I see it. A political movement where citizens were cast as consumers who, quote, whose de democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling, a process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency, end quote. And where society is organized around a competitive market that, quote, ensures that everyone gets what they deserve. I find that to be a really... Um, accurate description of, of what we mean by neoliberalism. I mean, it really is the, the kind of modern laissez-faire. It's the modern hands-off. It's the saying, saying that, look, there's winners and losers in everything in life, right? Let the market determine winners and losers. Go to the marketplace, that prices, prices will go up, prices will go down, you know, in, in the current political environment. Um, you know, if there's inflation, hey, the market will work it out. If there's unemployment, hey, the market will work it out. If there's climate change, hey, the market will work it out, right? Hands off the market. <laughs> Let the market do its thing. Let the market determine the winners and losers. It completely ignores where the market came from, who wrote the rules of the market, how the market is, is a social institution that's designed ahead of time to pick winners and losers. Um, so that's what neoliberalism to me and to, and to a lot of uh, folks think about this. In September 2011, a movement suddenly flowered up in the, the shadow of Wall Street called Occupy Wall Street. And you give this some significant space in your book. Um, talk about Occupy Wall Street, what it wanted, and how you what do you think its lasting impact has been and you know it's often asked was it a movement or a moment so maybe take a run at that too yeah um i, I think the kind of 
kernel for this book actually started during Occupy Wall Street. Um, myself participating in some teach-ins um, down in New York City, uh, organizing some teach-ins on the University of Vermont campus, um, and recognizing that in Zuccotti Park, there was so many people with so many issues and so many placards and so many posters, <laughs> uh, it, you know, all asking for a variety of things, right? But at the basis of it all, it was a, it was really questioning a system that put too much power in too few hands. So no matter the issue, and there were a lot of them that the folks in Occupy Wall Street were talking about, it boiled down to, in, in my view, a political economy that was constructed in such a way to concentrate power in the hands of the very, very, very wealthy. And so, as you know, what came out of that moment was a movement against the 1%, right? The narrative of the 1%. I mean, pre-Occupy Wall Street, there was no 1% narrative. And I ask my students nowadays, you know, where did the 1% narrative come from? They're like, well, we don't know. It's just, you know, the 1%. <laughs> you know? I mean, to, to them, it's just like what they grew up with. Um, and, it's, and it's a narrative that really created kind of two brands of, of uh, economic populism, right? And uh, in my view, uh, Trump represented one of those brands and our own Senator Sanders represented the other um, to really sort of uh, come to terms with establishment versus anti-establishment, to come to terms with who gets the power and who wields the power over the economic system, to really kind of break the, the, the very system, break down the very system that has created what um, political economist Carl Polanyi called way back in the 1940s, a market society, right? A society that is designed and created around market rules instead of democratic institutions. What did you do at Occupy Wall Street? And, and did you just kind of hear about it and <laughs> to drive down there to see what was going on? Took the train down um, with my son, who's a filmmaker. And uh, well, we're both, he kind of got me into filmmaking late in life. And um, we, we took some video and participated in some, some teach-ins and some conversations and some debates and uh, really tried to document what was going on and bring it back to Vermont. Um, and then, then with my own students, organized the teach-in at UVM, got involved with the, the, the kind of Burlington Occupy uh, movement that was organizing you know, downtown Burlington just about every day for a long stretch. Um, and um, slowly, slowly, slowly became the impetus for writing this book, but also became the cornerstone for a documentary film that we did called Waking the Sleeping Giant when we um, followed this, this, the Sanders uh, team around throughout 2015 and 2016 to try to understand what was happening, what was happening in this sort of the the Sanders economic populism that was really catching storm around the country, especially amongst young people. Um, and to document that as kind of a, a, you know, the next wave of a progressive movement in the United States. It's so interesting that you connect those two. I also went down to Occupy Wall Street and um, it was incredible, really. And, and there was, you know, you left there with the sense like, could this be the beginning, you know, of a 
of a correction, a moral and economic and social correction, um, you know, finally somebody is naming the elephant in the room, um, you know, of inequality and racism and greed and, um, and you, so when you were following Bernie around the country, so this is the beginning of his presidential campaign and, and morphs into the heart of his campaign, what do you see? What was and is the connection that Bernie makes when he leaves Vermont and goes to these rural Midwestern towns? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, he's tapping into the same thing that, um, hesitate to say, but the same thing that Trump tapped into, a a discontent with the system, right? Um, In fact, what blew me away was interviewing people in lines at 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 Sanders rallies. You know, we'd ask them, hey, if Sanders doesn't get the nomination, what next? And they said, well, we're going to vote for Trump. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) These are two diametrically opposed sort of views of the world. And um, we we interviewed... um, uh, Robert Reich, and, and he said, you know, this is this isn't red versus blue. This isn't Democrat versus Republican. This is establishment versus anti-establishment. And so it was this long tail of Occupy Wall Street that was saying um, the economic system doesn't work for the average person. The social system is rigged. Uh, there's too much. There's a concentration of too much power, and the money and the moneyed interests are in the hands of too few, and they control the political system. So that sort of shaped our story, and we did um, we did another a number of uh, sort of chapters to our film were were about Black Lives Matter and that as a movement during 2015 2016, a movement called Democracy Spring, with a bunch of young people who cut their teeth at Occupy Wall Street uh, around the country, and were organizing in Washington D.C. around getting getting money out of politics. Um, we spent some time with a young woman from deep coal country, West Virginia, who was inspired by the Senator Sanders campaign to run for office herself um, as, as a, a way of kind of taking back power and to represent the, the kinds of folks that she grew up with in coal country. So, um, you know, that to me, it was the tale of Occupy Wall Street. It was the broadening of injustices to include not just economic injustices, which was largely the focus of the Sanders campaign, at least early on, but also racial and environmental injustices. And I think that continues to today. I mean, I think Sanders has really put his attention now to much like the conservatives did in the 70s and 80s to get folks elected on town councils and school boards and state legislatures and start to build a power base that will swing the pendulum back the other way. What does it say to you that the flip side of that kind of populism has been an openly racist and violent and anti-democratic, you know, impulse that we see at the center of the kind of resurgent far right that Trump has really come to be the face of. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's tapped into an alternative narrative, right? An alternative universe, really, that sees the, the loss of white male power in society. It sees the, um, that inclusion of more voices in a truly democratic system. Not a system, <laughs> you know, like the, um, the U.S. Constitution was 
written by wealthy slave owners, right? It was written by a, a rising American aristocracy, right? It took decades to amend the Constitution to ban slavery. It took decades more to give women the, the nationwide right to vote, right? It took decades more to get to a point of a, of, of a Voting Rights Act, right? So every step along the way, it's a tension between who's in power, which has largely been a kind of white male cast, and who is claiming to want a piece of the of their democracy. Hmm. And so I see that I see that tension between establishment and anti-establishment. I see um, I mean look, this is a longer conversation. We could get into a conversation about social media. We could get into a conversation about, you know, the sort of loss of truth in American society. We could get into a conversation about how the 1% has manipulated a great huge groups of people across the country uh, based on race and based on fear and based on finding an other to point their finger at when while while the rich are othering everybody else they're sort of you know gobbling up their their so-called just rewards i noticed in your bio that you're an adjunct professor at the university of iceland yeah um, I got to visit Iceland for the first time earlier this year and I'm, you know, it's, um, everything about it in so many ways differs from our society, but I wonder what do you feel we can learn from Iceland? Well, it's funny. The first time I taught in Iceland was in 2008. Um, I was teaching it graduate course in ecological economics headed home and three days later the entire iceland economy collapsed you know they were right at the very very beginning of the you know the lehman brothers thing and the, the great recession and everything else that sort of tumbled down after them they were right at the beginning of it all and to go back to iceland the following year while the united states is deep into this great recession and while we're sort of you know struggling mightily as a society and their attitude was well that was stupid <laughs> almost like we deserved that we were dumb we put too much faith in our bankers we were too greedy uh let's let's go back to normal and normal to them was one generation removed from a from an agri agricultural society we are now many generations removed from the land most of us right we are detached from the environment. Uh, we are detached from community. We are detached from each other. You know, we've seen the social fabric of our big country get stretched thinner and thinner and thinner. And places like places like Iceland, like they got their own problems, their own challenges with race. It's a very homogenized um, culture and country, um, which in some ways um, uh, is is very different than the case of the U.S. Um, but, you know, they haven't lost that sense of family and community. They haven't lost that sense of the real trade-off of our time isn't like how much more money I can make, but how much less time I have for myself, for my community, and for my family. So, uh, and, you know, they're, they're trying to hang on to that just like, you know, communities here in Vermont are. They're trying to hang on to their identity. They're trying to hang on to a lifestyle, a kind of balancing act. 
And it comes back to what we were talking about early. I mean, I think there are examples of economies that have gotten to a sort of state of maturity where they're focused more on balance and cooperation and resilience than they are on growth and competition and greed. And I find that in many places outside the U.S. You know, it was so interesting during the co the height of the COVID pandemic, Iceland was held up as the safest place in the world, a place that had effectively managed the pandemic uh, in such a way that um, the fallout, the casualties were relatively low when compared to here. I remember talking to a woman from Iceland, asking her about um, the the pandemic and I said, so why do you think you guys did better at it than anybody else? And the first thing she said was, well, we trust our government. And she said that um, they seem to be managing it quite well. So when they told us something, we listened. And um, anyway, it, it just struck me because coming from here um, where the opposite happened, you know, it became politically advantageous to undermine public health and science to, you know, with really very deadly results, particularly for, yeah. you know, COVID deniers. And it, this is all signs of, of what we've been talking about as, as a kind of growing market society, right? These are all signs of reducing social relations to market logic. They're all signs of kind of an economic system and an economics that reinforces that system that is hyper individualistic, right? that really sort of cherishes the independence of the individual instead of the interdependence of the individual with family, with community, and with the environment. That's the difference. That's at the heart of what I'm talking about in this progress religion, right? One worldview that says, you know, it's, it's up to you. Pull, it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, you're on your own. And another that says, no, we live in this thing called a society. We have to build good governance. We have to build trust in one another. You know, we saw that anecdotally here in the United States. Um, you know, the state like Vermont actually did quite well with COVID as compared to other states. And I would trace that back to still having a trust in government and a sense of community, right? And a willing to lean on each other in times of, of difficulty. The subtitle of your book is Reclaiming Our Future from the Fairy Tale of Economics. What does reclaiming our future look like and how do we do it? Well, it's 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 taking back our future from the status quo. Taking back our future from this warped sense of success as um, grow the economy at all costs. Taking back our future from, from the world percent or the point oh oh one percent where the current system is working quite well for them thank you very much um you know i stumbled in writing the last chapter of this book i stumbled into the idea of of um radical pragmatism right this kind of balancing act between there are near-term pragmatic things that we can do right there are solutions on the shelf versus the necessity to radically change the system that we're in, right? To, to take power back from the status quo. And the place where I land, and it was in part my learning process of making this film um, on, on the kind of Sanders revolution, 
is I land on social movement building. You know, I, I see taking power back from the wealthy elite and, and, and overturning the idea of a market society and returning back to democratic institutions and systems of trust and community um, about social movement building. And I saw the kernels of that in making this film in 2015, 2016. Um, I saw it again in the last presidential cycle. The challenge now is that it has to, it can't be every four years. It's got to be day to day, week to week, month to month. It's got to be, um, it, it's got to be overturning a kind of a brainwashing that we've all gone through. Myself, is, this book is a reflection on my own brainwashing. Again, it's a child of the 1980s and the greed is good generation, right? To kind of return to the the basic uh, ideas and premises and values of my mom and away from the kind of greed is good MBA generation of my dad. All right. Well, John Erickson, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.